Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, and welcome back to this latest episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. So today you'll be hearing me speak with the wonderful Megan Bray, who is a Brisbane-based dietitian and is the co-director of FMB Wellbeing, which stands for Food, Mind, Body, a practice specialising in eating disorder treatment and non-diet approaches to nutrition. So Megan's a strong advocate for recovery, non-diet nutrition and body positivity. She draws upon her own lived experience with an eating disorder to support clients in finding their own food and body freedom. She's really fierce and super enthusiastic. I just really love uh, to hear Megan's, um, the way Megan thinks about things and her approach to helping people to move through the processes of making peace with food. She believes empathy, compassion and openness are the foundation of supporting individuals with eating concerns. So apart from FMB, Megan uh, has spent her time very wisely and she has undertaken research in the eating disorders field, working uh, also as a peer mentor with individuals pursuing recovery and is very active in the pro-recovery social media space. So Megan's mission is to shift stereotypes around eating disorders and to help all people understand genuine recovery is possible for everyone. So here you'll hear Megan speaking about uh, a number of different topics, including her own lived experience and the way in which she so brilliantly understands how, when and why to introduce that into uh, her the time that she spends with individuals and groups. She's just so very thoughtful um, and really hits the mark in terms of understanding uh, the complexities of uh, you know um, how to how to tell one of your clients that you actually have, have have had a lived experience without it being all about us and still the focus, the focus still remaining on the client's experience. So I hope you really enjoy this. Megan's lots of fun and uh, I think we should all watch out for her not only now but in the future. Enjoy everybody. Hello everybody and welcome back to the next episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. So today I have a good, the great pleasure of speaking with our colleague Megan Bray who is a dietitian based in Brisbane in Queensland. So even though it is winter, Queenslanders just seem to enjoy this perpetual warm weather. So um, without making us too envious Megan, how's the weather up there today? Um, I'm sitting here in my living room and I'd say it's a perfect 24 degrees outside, not a cloud in the sky. Oh, don't even. <laughs> see? That's, yep. See, that's not even funny. When you live in the south and things are cold, then we, we have a, an awkward relationship with Queenslanders, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, a lot of the time when I'm talking to colleagues down south, there's, there's a lot of angry face emojis being thrown around. <laughs> it doesn't mean we don't love you. Because we still do. We love you, but we can hold our love alongside um, ridiculous envy. <laughs> you, do have, you, you do have good restaurants and live music, which we don't have, so I'll give you that much. Yeah, exactly. So you can shove your sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dearie me. So you and I have been working alongside each other, I guess, but at a distance for quite a number of years now in eating disorder circles, haven't we? So it's it's some... Um, I, I love, um, you know, I love the, the kind of connections that we can make throughout Australia. You know, what, what's your experience been like as, a, as an eating disorder dietitian and the kind of community that we have here? I have just, I've just been blown away by it. I actually was thinking about it today, how I initially connected with you, and I'm pretty sure it was via Instagram. I mean, I'd heard oh, yeah. about your, you know, your work and, and all of that, but I think the first actual contact I had was social media. So I just think it's amazing this sort of age we live in where, you know, you, you press a few buttons and you're connecting with a colleague down south. And I think the best part is 
it, it is quite a small community in a way, so mm-hmm. it doesn't take very long to get to know a lot of the familiar faces. I feel like every time I attend a conference um, or a workshop, it's just a whole group of, of friends that you haven't seen in a couple months. Yeah, that's really true. And I think because there's not heaps of us, we tend to be quite tight knit, don't we? Because there's, you know, we, we, we kind of just have each other. And now, of course, we're really blessed to have this international community. And on, on that note, in particular, you have recently come back from Prague. So can you tell us, give us a little bit of a summary about, um, about uh, what your adventures were like in Prague? So yes, early June was the International Conference on Eating Disorders uh, held in Prague. I think three weeks prior, I was not going and then made a bit of a spontaneous life oh. to, to disappear to Prague. Um, Good on you. Was, yeah, it was amazing. I think there was a thousand people who attended. So oh, wow. eating disorder professionals from all over the world. And uh, we had a hundred from Australia. So that was that was a good attendance there. But it was really just three days of incredible workshops, plenary sessions, um, and of course, plenty of rich discussion over Czech beer and pork sausages as well. Um, So it was everything from, you know, current treatment approaches, uh, lots to do with practice-based evidence, which I found really intriguing. Um, Personal favourite, the lived experience got worked in there a fair bit. Nice, nice. Awesome to kind of see so many people doing so many amazing things worldwide and then to get together and talk about how we can better support people with eating disorders. Yeah, it's, it's, it must be such a great space to have people come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all in the same space, um, all with a shared passion for for recovery, like whether that's from a research perspective or whether it's from, um, as you say, you know, lived experience perspective, um, mentoring and um, and treatment as well. And it's probably a space where because I guess, you know, eating disorders are probably or well, arguably one of the most complex um, mental health conditions that affects many different um, many different humans that it's um it's got to be a place where as you I, I loved your your expression of rich discussion <laughs> <laughs> very very rich very and I think rich. it was um you know it was really incredible to see some people who've been in in the industry for decades and it yeah. was just you know as a young practitioner I just and also as someone who has a lived experience I was just filled with I guess so much admiration for someone for, you know, a group of people who just taken so much interest in this one population for up to 30 years. And mm-hmm. I can't even fathom how much those individuals would have seen over their time practicing. Oh my gosh. If you can imagine, I mean, I've been a dietitian now for 20 years and in eating disorders for probably about, mm, maybe about, 13 or 14 years and even wow. even I think about back then and think you know when I was in more of an entry-level eating disorder dietitian um, position what I have seen um, it's not so much change over time but more evolve um, you know that we're understanding the way different eating disorders come to be um, and and what kind of treatment approaches are best matched to different people and that there is rarely a one-size-fits-all or actually I mean I, I would personally argue there's no one-size-fits-all um, but that that's that's where our you know our combined wisdom comes together so that we can work as teams with a um, you know and put all our all our intellect and all our hearts together so that we can um, best service our community. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, you know, an interesting space because the reality is we don't have an answer for how to support people with an eating disorder yet. And we have lots of really good ideas. And, you know, I think it is just so important that we be communicating so openly and just so often to put put our heads together to to try and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm not sure what you ha- if you have any thoughts around this, but if I was to ask you, what do you think are the things that we're not talking about enough when it comes to eating disorders? If I can pop you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, again, this is where I sort of um, maybe not necessarily put my lived experience hat on, but I guess just put that real client-focused hat on I just think we really need to be working more with the individual um 
and it depends which service people are walking walking into but sometimes I think we're really talking about the diagnosis rather than the person and the reality is like I personally don't really care if someone's been diagnosed with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder or whatever it may be I want to hear about that person's you know relationship to food relationship to their body and how their eating disorder affects their life mm. um, and I guess it, dep- it depends who you're talking to um, but I I really feel like we can do more in that space just really looking at this this just from a Mm-hmm. from a looking at that individual person perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes complete sense, right? Because everybody exists in a different um, a different dynamic in terms of family. Um, they're di- different ages, different genders, different life experiences. So what you say makes complete sense. And I guess it's finding that balance, isn't it, between trying to... Um, trying to funnel our money and our resources and our energy into areas that might service and help as many people as possible whilst at the same time recognizing that there's going to be no one way that suits every single person or maybe even a substantial proportion of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and and that's, that's it. If we're asking those individuals what they need to best best suit them I think we can pull from all the information we have I know there's a lot of debate around you know manualized treatment approaches at the moment and I just personally think we need to be looking outside of that because it is really really hard to just put someone put someone through a specific manualized approach and that be right for them well, it's really interesting you raise that because I don't know you and I agree on this that um, and I've also um, started communicating with a lot of people who are using manualized treatment approaches and it seems as though the consensus is that there are actually very few people and services that are using manualized treatment to the letter which to me I'm like okay so if you're not if you're kind of just using the best of, quote unquote, (laughs) this, this particular treatment approach then it's not actually the manualized approach is it like I I get kind of confused it's like well if it's not for example if we're talking about the two classics FBT and um, CBTE and I've spoken to a lot of people who are like I love this aspect of say CBTE but this part of it for a vast majority of my clients it's just not working for them and I'm like well so why are you calling it CBTE then you know maybe call it CBTE informed or you know whatever it is because Surely, I mean, my thoughts are surely that confounds research, doesn't it? Surely. Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of one of the conversations that, um, well, I attended an FBT workshop in Prague and that was one of the conversations there was when we sort of say we're talking about FBT, the reality is that most practitioners aren't actually implementing it by the book. Mm -hmm. So it is really hard to know what it is. And in terms of research, we've really got to try and figure out what those core components are that work. And if we're, I guess, bastardizing it, it's really hard to tell. Absolutely. So we're kind of what you're, what you're saying is it feels like we're stuck, uh, stuck a little bit between a rock and a hard place because while we're teasing things apart to figure out the essential elements that could be most effective for people, we're not really able to test it (laughs) properly. Yeah. And that was kind of where that conversation around practice-based evidence really intrigued me because I think, um, you know, as clinicians, we sometimes look at the research and think, gosh, I don't know if that's entirely relevant to every individual I see. And I I like the concept of practice-based evidence around just examining the real messy, complicated world that is our day-to-day clinical practice. And I'll happily put my hand up and say I haven't been doing enough of that, Um, I guess, looking at what we're doing in kind of our practice but it's something we're certainly looking to do more of yeah that's great so so I really like that phrase practice based evidence so how would dietitians start exploring that idea in their own practice do you think I mean I think it would just be a lot of us kind of have our a treatment approach that we tend to use we we often I guess say that it's that our practice is a CBT FBT motivational interviewing overlay. Sure, um, yeah, <laughs> so sure. This is a bit of a uh, a tongue twister. 
but I think we all sort of have a way that we treat our clients um, and it would be getting that on paper, you know, putting it down, um, implementing it, looking at what you, what you really want to study and then collecting that data and evaluating it. I don't think it has to be um, overly complicated, although I will admit it's not something that I am well versed in just yet. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, again, that might be something to um, take a look at in the future. You know, we we kind of started off this conversation talking about, you know, what what aren't we talking about enough? And I love that. I've actually written that down as something to just have a little think more about because um, uh, like you, I, I call it being therapeutically promiscuous. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea uh, well, you and I are both in a very uh, luxurious position in private practice where we can pick and choose from the best of our, uh, the best of what um, also suits our personalities too. Um, you know, I love acceptance and commitment therapy. I love motivational interviewing. I love mindfulness informed therapies. Um, I love all of Brene Brown's work. Um, I love oh, self-compassion. Oh you know, Brene Brown. Hello. Oh, I love <laughs> we bow TV. Yes, she is. She is a da bomb. That's for sure. I so just it's, think it's insane mm. that she's not used more in eating disorders. To be honest. <laughs> yeah. I. Yes. I know. Yes. In, especially with shame and shame resilience. Mm-hmm. For sure. I um. I mean, eating disorders. They are all about shame. Everything. Yeah. Everything. You know, Brene Brown's classic. Um. You know in classic we need to kind of share shame or speak shame yes and i really think you know when we're living with an eating disorder they thrive in isolation and it's that shame that kind of stops us from reaching out and i guess educating people on the power of speaking their shame can be so valuable in that in that treatment process absolutely yeah i couldn't agree more and speaking shame with those who deserve to hear your story Absolutely. And that's um, absolutely like you've got to be in that kind of trusting, trusting yes. relationship for it to, to really work. Yeah. I find it really interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this lately um, because I've had a couple of, um, had a couple of clients lately who've really gone into a shame spiral because their binge eating has, has reemerged in the, in the face of some difficult like life circumstance. Of course, that's when our eating disorder behaviors tend to reemerge when life gets tricky. Um, and yeah, I've been having a lot of really interesting conversations lately about um, about the different eating disorder behaviours and the depth of shame that tends to come from those. And I've been really talking about that more a restrictive um, style of eating because it's so culturally sanctioned doesn't appear to have this strong shame-based experience associated with it. Might have a secret, secretive kind of association, association, but the shame with binge eating seems just so huge. And I think it's probably, look, I mean, I, I guess I'm speaking aloud here and thinking it's probably to do with um, the experience of perhaps that, that loss of control and that, um, you know, that, that that's seen as something that we should be able to control, especially further along in recovery. So I'm interested in, in your thoughts on the, on the different kind of behaviors and what comes along with those. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I mean, um, I guess I speak here from my, my lived experience a little bit. So for anyone who doesn't know, I have a lived eating disorder recovery experience and it's something I, you know, I use in my practice every single day. I am denied about it for ages, but I have decided that it is always helpful to disclose to my clients because I, I honestly think that they are being so open and vulnerable with me. So I think it's only fair that I, I tell them the position in which I'm coming from as well. So that's a dietitian, but also someone who has, has been there. And, you know, I noticed the binging and purging is something that clients feel incredibly incredibly shameful around and I know myself when when you're living with it people talk about dieting and restriction in openly in mm. you know in the schoolyard in workplace uh, lunch rooms but the reality is no one sits there and says oh hey I I binged last night and then I purged and and people have kind of a a warm response to that and 
I, I've noticed just how much that I guess can get in the way of of treatment if if we're unable to support clients to to share that part of their eating disorder journey. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So as somebody with a lived experience, have you found that being able to find um being able to find a place to 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 put your experience in order to um be present for somebody else's shame i mean that sounds just so valuable yeah i've i've noticed it to be quite helpful and i guess my yeah. my training has always been that i mean self disclosure should obviously only ever come if it's helpful for the client um and any specific self disclosure i I only tend to engage in if it's on, you know, off the back of something one of my clients have, have said, or are, I guess, struggling, struggling to talk about. So I will often say, you know what, I, I have binged and purged a lot over my, um, over my eating disorder and my recovery. And it was something that I really struggled to talk about. Um, but I noticed when I was able to kind of speak that shame and, and work with someone on the specifics of those situations, I could actually work through what was happening for me in that moment. Yeah. Because if we just bury it and pretend it doesn't exist, we're, we're missing a really large part of what's going on. And I find that, you know, once, once clients know that you're not going to judge and you're not going to be totally grossed out. Cause I think that's the thing we honestly think if you tell someone, Oh, I binged and I purged for someone who's never done that. You're just afraid that someone's going to look at you like you have three heads and you haven't showered in four weeks and you're mm. the most disgusting person that they've ever come across. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, while the lived experience I have found to be helpful in that, I think even practitioners without one, as long as you know, you're supporting people to share their, to share the specifics of their eating disorder and reassuring there's going to be no judgment um, yes. and that it's a safe place to talk about that. Um, and, I, and I think too, you may not have that specific experience, but even sharing something that you have felt shameful about can, can really, and, and moved through in your own life, I think that can be helpful in itself. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's probably the wisdom to know the where, when and how, isn't it? And, and the particular client sitting in front of you. I think that probably, um, do you think for you that has come with experience and some guidance and supervision and things like that? Absolutely. Um, I was very cautious um, about sharing my lived experience, mostly because I was told not to by (laughs) by health professionals Mm. who knew. Um, And to be fair, they are not working in the eating disorder space. So that was, I guess, not necessarily a mistake I made, but I kind of went to a trusted person in the health field or in the dietetic field. And, you know, she really encouraged me not to to share that experience, but then getting linked in with eating disorder specialists, I, I was encouraged then to actually share. And I can honestly say it's the best thing I ever did. But beyond that, it's about getting that kind of training and support from other people who have seen this being done for years and years. And up until recently, there weren't really any guidelines, but Carolyn Costin actually just released some for clinicians with the lived recovery experience. So I think that's been really, really helpful too. Um, while it's, it's a lot of things are very intuitive, you know, um, disclose in the best interest of the client, um, don't share horror stories, no talk of specific numbers and focus on your recovery well, uh, rather than your illness. All of those same things seem intuitive um, and they gen- generally are, but it is really awesome to kind of, I guess, have that on paper to refer back to. And I... Yes. I am lucky enough to have some very close colleagues who I talk regularly with about this, some of whom have a lived experience as well. So it's been really beneficial to be able to, I guess, share that and talk over it with someone else. Absolutely. Because as not only as clinicians, but then also as human beings, we all have our vulnerabilities. And, you know, my vulnerability as somebody who does not have a lived experience doesn't mean that I don't have vulnerabilities in other areas of, of my life, um, you know, or that perfectionism doesn't pop its, doesn't rear up in other areas of people's lives, um, you know, or, or 
or low self-compassion or low self-care and things like that. So I think that, you know, your experience really gives you a beautiful foundation from which to work really empathically and really insightfully because you're you you have had this opportunity to really examine your vulnerabilities and to be really really aware of them and keep on top of that and keep on top of care self care uh, absolutely i honestly say it to all of my clients like i say i know it feels like you're wasting time in treatment i know it feels like you'd rather be doing anything but this but the reality is the things you learn in recovery you cannot you cannot really learn elsewhere. Sure. You're not going to yeah. learn it in your degree. You're not going to learn it in your workplace. You might learn elements, but when you really have to examine those parts of yourself, which are vulnerable and sometimes a little bit scary, um, mm, messy, and messy and imperfect, mm-hmm. um, which, which I guess was the worst thing in the world for me. But once you've done that, you, are very resilient and Mm. you do have the capacity to kind of examine your life as it happens and you're willing to be vulnerable and you've I guess learnt to reach out to people rather than holding it all in and I think it's really I mean I think that's important for everyone to know particularly working in this field because the reality is it's tough like you you see a lot of a lot of intense stuff every single day and these are these are skills that you I would love to see everyone taking into their career. Yeah, definitely. So if there are, we, we know, especially with some recent research coming out that up to 75% of dietetic students are actually engaging in disordered forms of exercise or eating, which breaks my heart, to be honest. It really, really mm-hmm. breaks my heart. Um, Uh, And probably not surprising um, in many ways. But if there are, let's just run with the assumption that there are plenty of students who might be interested in having a career in in eating disorders or therapy of some description, um, but uh, but have struggles of their own. What what kind of advice or suggestions would you say if if somebody sees um, being an eating disorder dietitian in their future, but they're struggling at the moment? Um, Firstly, what I would say is that prior to entering the industry, you know, you really need to be 100% recovered. Um, And the hardest part in that is that we don't have a universal definition for recovery. Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is something I would love to move towards. Again, you know, Carolyn Costin has one that is quite widely used, but I just... I would love to see something, and this is, I suppose, the sciencey dietetic part of me, something a little bit more quantifiable, mm. um, just because it can be really hard to know if you're there. Um, and I think it is really important to be there prior, prior to going back in and working with individuals. Although there has been, I guess, a little bit of research to show that um, working in this space for someone who is recovered, it actually strengthens their recovery, but that still rests on the fact that they were recovered when, when starting. Yeah, definitely. So, so if we, if you were to, if we were to kind of brainstorm some quantifiables as in, you know, how long, um, how, do you know what I mean? Is there anything that kind of comes to mind as a bit of a, because you know how in, um, oh, for example, with with uh, depression, you might say, if you're on some medication, it's in, it would be a good guide to say, have no depressive episodes for, I think it's 12 months or so before starting to reduce medication. So if we were to kind of draw that parallel, so with no kind of eating disorder um, behaviours, um, remembering, of course, that um, eating disorder thoughts or urges can happen um, can happen at, you know, can, can pop up at lots of vulnerable times. So if we were to kind of go along that path, is there any kind of quantifiable things that you would like to put on the table? Um, I would really look for at least two years, but honestly, more, like four years, because I think... I think because it is so hard, because there's so many elements of recovery. So there's, yes, I haven't engaged in eating disorder behaviours. That's, you know, that's pretty black and white. Yes, yes, Um, I agree. But the thoughts, and I fully believe that 
you can recover to a point where you no longer have thoughts associated with an eating disorder. Like I no longer have any thoughts associated with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. But, and, and, but the part of that is that you don't wake up one day and go, geez, today I'm recovered. I think if anything, it's the yeah. absence of these things over time. So it's almost like you look back a year later and go, gosh, I haven't had any thoughts around my eating disorder or coping with restriction or urges or this or that. So it is really hard to put a, you know, a time frame on it. So I think the longer the better because thoughts are very hard to, to quantify. And as we know, you know, thoughts are just thoughts. So they can kind of pop into your head and I guess not have any relevance and you can just sure, kind of sure. dismiss them. So that's what, again, what makes it so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it just gives you a lot of time away from your eating disorder to also consider, do I actually want to go back into the space anyway? Yes. Um, I yeah. think, you know, when you kind of just recover, you're so motivated and think, oh gosh, can't wait to give back to this space. And, you know, or I, I had a, a challenging experience, but I think I've got a lot to give. But I think if you give enough time, a lot of people wouldn't really want to go back there. Um, and you know that if you do want to go back there, that you really want to go back there. Yeah, it's it's also probably um, not so much about um, re-triggering your own kind of eating disorder cognitions or behaviours. It's also about how much energy you have and your capacity in this space because I think you know we would probably agree that you need to be pretty you need to be pretty full your cup needs to be pretty full most of the time um you know working with people who are who are really struggling it does require a lot of you um so it's probably yeah not only about the you know triggering off but also about you know what's your capacity just as a human being for sure. Like, and it's, yeah, it's, are you engaging in regular self-care? Are you well acquainted with the practice of self-compassion? Yeah. Are you able to deal with difficult life events and emotions in a healthy way? Yeah. Um, all of those things are essential, I feel. to, And again, not just from the lived experience for everyone, Um to kind of be well-versed in this stuff prior to, to getting involved in the industry because I, you know, there's a, there's a high rate of compassion fatigue. That's a, that's oh, a yeah. Um, and I feel like if we're safeguarding against some of that stuff with regular self-care, self-compassion, um, training, supervision, all that sort of stuff, um, and then layer the lived experience, you can be quite vulnerable. So it's important to be, all over that. And I would yeah. also say, ideally, you kind of take a stepped approach into it. I, um, I, I guess I had a little bit of a dream run in all of this. I got a, when I was in my master's, I got a placement at an eating disorder unit. Um, and I did, you know, I did request it because I thought I just want to dip my toe in this space and think, see what I think about it. Um, cause I wasn't a hundred percent on whether I would want to go back into that space or not. And I had a really great experience, had an excellent supervisor, um, and thought, yeah, I, I really want to do this. And then, and then I kind of asked, um, to be mentored by my supervisor and he was able to kind of, I guess, give me a little support around that sat in on all of his sessions um, and then took a small handful of eating disorder clients before working up to it being the majority of my caseload. And, I, you know, it was really fascinating. I was, I was sitting in on his clinics when I was a new grad, having had a lived experience and I guess I identified then as being recovered around, you know, three or four years. And I remember sitting there next to him going, oh, my gosh, that totally explains why that happened to me. I had no idea that that was kind of the scientific explanation for it. Mm. So it was kind of, you know, you learn so, like you've still kind of got to do that. You still want to do the dietetic stuff or the, you know, whatever specific um, industry you're in. You've got to do that and then think about your lived experience as well because it's, it is very different. Mm. 
Yeah, and how fortunate. And of course, you are talking about our wonderful colleague, Shane Jeffrey. Of course. You work with at Food, Mind, Body, Wellbeing in Brisbane, um, who is a bit of a legend, let's face it, here in Australia. Um, a, a very um, humble legend, I would say. Can you describe him? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but, it, you know, it was interesting. I was actually just talking to him about this last week because I, and, and this is, and this is where I, you know, I identify as fully recovered from an eating disorder, but I still think I'm a bit of a recovering perfectionist. I, um, I have to make sure it doesn't pop up in my work at times because, um, and particularly when I'm doing things like presentations, uh, to colleagues who are more experienced than I am and who've been in the industry for a lot longer, I, I certainly get those thoughts around, you know, am I good enough? Am I this imposter that's presenting here? And it was just so wonderful to be chatting to him last week. And he was just like, you've got this, go for it, just do it. And, you know, I think it, it is really important too, to have those kind of people backing you. Um, and, to value the lived experience and go, don't discount the fact you, you know, you lived with it. Remember that that's that own, that's kind of its own style of training. Oh, absolutely. The, and the, in, in addition to those wonderful words that Shane offered you, I guess I would say how very human of you, Megan, to, <laughs> um, you know, to feel a bit um, maybe anxious in the face of, um, you know, presenting to people who either real or perceived, you know, you felt were more senior than you. How very human of you. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, and that's it. It's nice to have yeah, it's lovely to hear those things because I think that's another thing is, um, and I guess what I encourage everyone to, I guess, mention to their clients as well, like some of these things are just normal life things, they are, you know, they are. and yes. I think sometimes we, we get pigeonholed, you know, I know myself by therapists who said, oh, you're very perfectionistic, you're very this, you're very that. And all of a sudden, those labels put you in a box and you're like, mm. oh, yeah, this is how I act because I am this because, you know, this professional told me that. And it almost come, becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm always really quick to remind my, my clients. As an example, I've got this one client who is moving, to, moving back to America next week. And we had our final session on Friday and she's quite anxious, you know, a little worried. And I was like, oh, you should be, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a very normal thing to feel you're moving overseas. This isn't because, you know, this isn't necessarily associated with an eating disorder or being a perfectionist. This is just a normal part of life. And the yes. reality is it's an awesome challenge for you to for you to step up to in terms of, am I going to let that little eating disorder voice in my head convince me that this is a, that it's a good way to cope with whatever I'm about to go through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what a valuable experience for the person you're talking about to have, to have, um, some insight into a very, very normal natural reaction to moving halfway across the world pretty much. Yeah, yeah, for mm. sure. Mm. And it's, um, and I think that's the same with a lot of kind of, I personally think the one that comes up a lot is the body image stuff. Like, yes, um, yes. You know, and I, and I, well, I don't get a lot of questions about my specific eating disorder journey. One, if I was to get one, it would be, do you ever wake up and feel uncomfortable in your body? And it's like, well, to be honest, I think everybody wakes up some days and think, oh, I feel a bit ugh today. Sure, um, sure, you sure. Know, you just don't feel like 100% in yourself. But it's not about that, you know, you're berating yourself and that it ties to your self-worth and all those sorts of things. But it's, mm. you know, it's, it's common to feel bloated. Or, yeah, you know, to feel sluggish and not your best self, and that's not, that's not, you know, remnant of an eating disorder. That's just again human living self. in this culture. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I again think it's really important to to remind people that you'll those things are just kind of part of it, and don't stress if that if that pops up. Do not stress. It's just part of part of the journey and part of yeah. life. Yes, that's so true. So I have a question for you. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Now I'm wondering, just given, let's 
let's have a think about the rates of disordered eating just in the general population. And then let's think about the, the general personality types of people working in health and working in eating disorder treatment circles. So let's just, let's just hold that for a second. <laughs> and, um, and then my question for you is, do you think that um, somebody with a lived experience in eating disorder, in the eating disorder treatment communities held up to um, a higher standard in terms of natural eating than people who don't have a lived experience. And I'm asking this in the context of that there are a lot of people in our treatment circles that actually engage in dieting themselves and have really weight biased attitudes towards our clients and towards other people, which I find quite disturbing. So I'm wondering if you feel like, man, I'm being held up to this really high standard of, you know, natural eating and, you know, no, you know, you know, um, having no behaviors. And yet there are tons of people who would engage in disordered eating um, behaviors and certainly attitudes. So can you tell I get a little bit fired up by this? So I, oh, I was just about to say, this is something I feel very, very strongly about. I yeah. honestly personally think that, and I know this kind of narrows the, um, the amount of people that could be working in the eating disorder space, but I honestly think if you are working in the eating disorder space, you need to be a natural eater. I just don't think it's appropriate for people to be engaging in dieting or or, or talking about dieting and that sort of thing. And I know that that is almost impossible given our culture. Um, I, wish it, I wish it was more of a reality. Um, but I absolutely, I absolutely feel like as someone with a lived experience, you're held up to kind of higher, higher scrutiny um, around, around your eating, eating behaviours and exercise behaviours and, and also the way you look as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I I know that I actually feel sometimes at public events where people know I have the lived know I have a lived experience I actually find myself being more conscious of what I'm choosing to eat wondering what people might be perceiving because I have had people comment on oh are you choosing this rather than this and it's and it's really weird because you're not going to walk around and say, okay, well, I'm choosing the cheese because I have a preference for cheese, but I'm saying no to this, you know, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. But I find that people are kind of, um, yeah, I, I have noticed very few people comment, um, but every now and then it happens. And another one I find interesting is the activity side of things. And I think that's more on a personal level because I am like, I'm someone that's always been very active um and i my physique looks as if i am active um and so i have i have certainly had people question me about my relationship to exercise and i think you know it can be really hard because i mean it can be really frustrating because you've worked so hard on having this healthy relationship to food and exercise only to then have that questioned but i guess again it honestly makes you strengthen that resolve in yourself because you're questioned about it relatively regularly. So you are examining it quite yeah. often. And I think that's, if you put yourself out there as someone with a lived experience, I really do just think it's something you have to accept. You sure. have to accept that you're on, you are under increased scrutiny and you have to accept that you are, you know, a role model. And I know that I'm a role model for my clients in many ways. And I do my absolute best to role model sort of healthy attitudes to food and, and weight and shape and body in front of them. Mm. Um, mm. Even though it feels very natural to me now, I, am, I'm, I guess I'm just conscious of making, of putting that out there. Sure, sure. So, so what you're essentially saying is, you know, it's going to, if you're going to continue to um, be an advocate, um, not only for other people with a lived experience, but then, um, you know, for your, for your own work, that that might be something that you'll just have to put up with. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. I mean, pretty much. But I think that's, I mean, that's something dietitians get. Sure. Anyway, anyway, anyway so that's why, right. Yeah. I think it's just an extension of that really. Yeah. Um, and also I kind of, 
um, you know, a lot of people make those classic, oh, you're a dietitian, insert annoying weight-centric comment here. Oh, um, my God. Or don't look, at, <laughs> don't look at what I'm eating. And it's like, yeah. I don't give a shit what you yeah. are eating. So eyes on your own plate. Thanks very much. Yeah, well, I actually, I just love using it as a platform to kind of give them, give them some education. Um, so I don't actually, I don't mind it. And I think that's probably why, you know, why I guess I get engaged in social media and, and whatever else I'm engaged in because I just want to keep putting it out there because I honestly think these, these ideas around the lived experience will continue to exist until people with a lived experience get out there and say, Hey, we're actually just super normal people. Yes. You don't need to be totally. any differently to the rest of the world. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think what it probably, um, what I would hope that it would do addition, in addition to that is also highlight, um, you know, shine a spotlight on practitioners and people in the field who are actually engaging in disordered um, behaviours that actually directly influences our work with people. So for example, if, if you're, if you're spending you know, time in your life controlling your own body weight, then I'm sorry, but that's going to creep into your work. Yeah, for sure. And I just look at it, you know, to me, 95% of diets fail. Like what more evidence do you need? It's actually a risk factor for weight gain over time. And, um, you know, I guess that's something I talk about with my clients a lot because they say, but I'm never going to be able to diet again. Or what about when my client, when my friends are talking about dieting, it's like, you're actually saving yourself a hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah, like, <laughs> yes. like, this is something guys to celebrate. Total wrong path. <laughs> you get to be on the other side of things, going, guys, Absolutely. I have the magic answer over here, and that it's that diets don't work. Yes, yeah, that's so true. I wonder. Um, I wonder. You know how? I mean, we. I know we've had a conversation about this before, where it's a source of frustration when you have clients who have had an experience or you hear people talk about, you know, the, the, you know, um, it's important to gain weight, but not too much or, mm. you know, or people um, who have an eating disorder that actually, they naturally sit at a higher weight and the terrible inequity in treatment that they have to endure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think I changed my mind on this topic a lot. And I think it's just because like everything with eating disorders, there's not one answer. And depending on kind of where you're at, it changes. But I have a real issue with goal weights. Um, sure, yeah. Unless we're sort of really taking into account a holistic view of what that might look like. Um, but mm -hmm. my preference is always that um, you kind of set that aside and you focus on someone's, you know, relationship to food. And I, of course, love Shane's um, raves model. So that regularity, yeah. adequacy, variety, eating socially and spontaneity. So I would look to, you know, support someone to get there. Then I consider kind of their thoughts and feelings around food. Um, you know, obviously their, their blood tests and all that sort of thing. And we actually use body comp in our, um, in our practice just to get a sense of, you know, is this person's muscle mass severely depleted or, you know, mm -hmm. is their fat mass supportive of like long-term health and wellbeing? And, and I really do get frustrated when you see someone who has a goal weight set by someone who may not have taken these things into account mm -hmm. and the goal weight doesn't account for that person achieving genuine well-being. And I always, and particularly with goal weights, I think, well, people naturally fluctuate around two and a half, three kilos most days. Mm -hmm. So it's a real issue if we're giving someone one specific weight and asking them to stay there. Because as a clinician, you might, in the back of your mind, be able to accept that if you give X kilos, you kind of actually mean a range. But for someone living with an eating disorder, you've just been given a sentence that you have to spend the rest of your life at that specific number. And yes. if you go above that, for whatever reason, your mind just starts to go, you know, you're a failure, you're fat, you're this, you're that. And I think it's really important that as clinicians, we don't just throw around these kind of numbers like, you know, like it's okay to give someone mm. an eating disorder that. And I also think, Part of recovery is to support an individual to have no relationship to that number on the scale. What are we doing as a treating team if we're asking them to focus on it 
every single week, week after week. And while it may be important in terms of, you know, for those who are underweight, reversing malnutrition, it still, I think, needs to kind of be underpinned by this conversation around, look, we're focusing on weight at the moment because it's impossible, impossible for you to be remotely well until you reach around about this number or around about this space. But <laughs> I have no idea if that's going to look like long-term recovery for you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess invite people to separate from that number. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I mean, I've got I've um, uh, bringing somebody to mind at the moment. You know, I've got a young adolescent. He's a he's an athlete, sixteen year old. Um, unfortunately, um, you know, his anorexia was fairly slow to be picked up. Unfortunately, and lost a fair amount of weight over um, over six months or so. And it was really interesting because. Um, his eating disorder was very keen for me to put a number on where yeah. he quote unquote should be. And it had to be one number. Like his eating disorder was kind of d- demanding of me to name a number where he had to reach to. And I, and I had to be really compassionate with him and compassionate with myself because honestly, there was a part of me that was like, oh, holy shit, maybe I should <laughs> just give him a number because it will help. Because I knew that it would, if I did, it would help to calm him down. But I knew ultimately it was actually going to hurt our relationship and it was going to hurt his recovery. So it took actually a lot of effort and I took it to supervision, obviously. Mm. Um, but this is a conundrum that we come up with a lot, isn't it? It's like, okay, we have to, we have to be able to hold the anxiety of this um, either young person or adult um, and their distress in order to um, place first and foremost authenticity and, and, and truthfulness first um, and, you know, whilst at the same time understanding that their distress is, you know, a lot of it comes from the eating disorder, just wanting to know exactly where they need to be. And I think that we can, I know in the past I've made that error um, and it's come back to bite me in the bum. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like once bitten, twice shy, I'm not going back <laughs> there again. Oh my God. Especially when, um, when, when you do meet somebody um, for the first time and they're still growing, for example, and you've, and you've got to, as dietitians, I think this is our strength, is we are really great assessors. We're really great at assessing physical parameters, emotional parameters, growth charts. So we can, you know, we've got, we've got some skills, you know, in being able to pull together a story that can help inform our ability to guide somebody through the distress of not knowing a number. Absolutely. And I also think it comes back to like, I mean, why do you want to know the number? Because yeah. if it's, you know, it's, if it's to feel safe, I assure you that when you know the number, you'll, be, you'll feel safe for a millisecond and then your eating disorder will find something else to, to kind of trip you up on. Oh, my God, that's so true. That's so true. So, and I always, you know, I always think about that. And it's like if I give in to your eating disorder here, it doesn't really matter because eating disorders are never satisfied. So while I think I'm doing the right thing for that individual in that second to kind of alleviate their distress, ultimately we're prolonging it. And you know, I was talking to sort of um, a, a psychologist in one of the, like a treating team the other day, and she sort of said, oh, yeah, that's a long-term goal for this individual to kind of move away from from being reliant or being attached to the weight. But right now we really need to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I just sort of thought, I don't know, like I, I personally am always, I always have the long-term vision in mind because as someone with an eating disorder, someone gives you a number or a detail early on in treatment, you don't let go of it. You don't forget it in the same way that yeah, maybe... No. Maybe as a clinician, you might think, oh, was that, the, was that the goal weight I set? Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds okay. Whereas you've been thinking about that number every day and every yeah. night. Yeah. And the more we kind of, oh, I, I always think the more we open up those conversations in early days to people, you're preparing them for the changes longer term and allowing them to, to kind of, I guess, walk with you in the journey and to have some insight into their own their own treatment and what you're thinking and why you're thinking it as a clinician. I love it. 
Love it. That's brilliant the way you you explain that. And I think, I'm not sure if you've ever been in this situation. I'm guessing that you probably have where you've been working with somebody so long to, um, um, to decompress that idea around um, particularly weight and numbers and things like that. And then some, uh, someone else maybe oh, in the treating oh. team. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm going to say. Yes. Um, yeah. Offers some quote unquote helpful advice around, a number or even a range of numbers and you're like face palm took me to get to this place oh because what they've basically done is they've dropped the bomb and then walked yeah yeah you know I think it's hard too because like this happens you know you see it in families and it's not any fault of the families you know I think it's a reflection of our culture but it's like oh yeah but she's like she's a healthy weight now so it's fine you know you don't need to she doesn't need to gain any more weight or he doesn't need to gain any more weight it's just like oh okay breathe because still we're basing it on the number we're basing it on BMI we're basing it on these really crude measures of health when it's like have you considered that health is so multifaceted and that Yes, okay, this person might not be extremely malnourished anymore, but they're still not at a place physically that's consistent with long-term recovery. Oh, absolutely. And if you look at the rates of relapse and um, the, the, the... the, for a lot of people, emotional well-being and um, and healing the body and body image—that's the long game. You know, yeah. it's really the long game. So I I'm not sure about you, but I I just find it intensely frustrating when treatment teams kind of put um, such rudimentary measurements on what a recovered body looks like physically, mm. and and we wonder why we've got such. Um, such high relapse rates because I mean unfortunately also what happens is that we're kind of um, quote-unquote releasing people back into a, a weight biased weight centric world so unless they're strong enough you know and resilient enough to be able to combat left right center uppercut right <laughs> left <laughs> you know <laughs> that um, they're able that they're able to actually emerge you know emerge out into life and i always say like look and i i think a lot lot of people agree with this weight restoration is not recovery like if you think weight restoration is recovery there's so much more to learn um and i and i also think dietitians are in a i'm a a big advocate for dietetic involvement in recovery obviously yes um we don't need to make that clear but i just really think it's important at the end of treatment for an eating disorder we introduce intuitive eating or natural eating and I guess help combat or help these individuals become resilient against our weight-centric world and really talk openly about the fact like, yes, you're in this safe space right now where there's this, you know, really holistic approach to health and well-being and we're talking about relationship to food and body and all food is good food and and all of that. But the reality is you go back out there into a world that no matter where you look, there's some body, um, you know, there's something that's going to trigger you in terms of body image and also encourage dieting. And I think we're in a really good position to, to help people build resilience against that. And that's why I honestly believe as practitioners there shouldn't be anyone engaging, particularly dietetics, um, in dieting and restrictive Mm. behaviours and labelling food as good and bad because ultimately if we're supporting an individual to recovery, you want to get them the whole way there. And that is why um, my my actual own experience, and this is why I am so... um, pro dietetics in in recovery so i did i never actually saw a dietitian throughout my recovery um well sorry i did for a for one or two sessions and we talked through the australian guide to healthy eating um, oh, don't <laughs> she said did you know that an adolescent your age needs this many serves of carbohydrate and i'm sitting there going well i'm pretty sure the carbohydrate will kill me so <laughs> i don't know how we're going to get around this um, oh god so that wasn't entirely helpful right um so you know my work largely centered on the psychological 
elements of my eating disorder. So what kind of maintained things there, perfectionism, self-worth, um, anxiety, those sorts of things that were relevant to me. I thought I was pretty much there in terms of recovery. And then I finished school and I moved out of home and moved down to start studying. And I didn't know how to cook um, properly. I didn't know how to meal plan. And so I just downloaded recipes from the internet and, or just got ideas from magazines and they were obviously all low, whatever, you know, low carb, oh, low fat, dear. that's yeah. what's available yep. out there most of the time. So I unknowingly settled back into restriction and I wondered why some of my eating disorder behaviors flared up again. And it was really because I was, I wasn't nourishing my body with everything that my body needed. Mm. Um, and so I started yeah, I started falling back into to kind of old behaviours. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I did get support around nutrition that I realised, wow, so having these rules around food can be so problematic for someone who very easily puts things in boxes and categories or just the whole, you know, and the research, that evidence that's just come out. If you slip into energy restriction, that it may then just trigger your eating disorder again or energy deficit, sorry, may just trigger your eating disorder again. And I really think that we have an awesome role as dietitians to educate around that and to teach people how to be able to nourish themselves in the real world and be resilient against diet culture rather than just kind of going, okay, well, you know, you're back, you're physically well now, off you go. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's such important points. And when it comes to later steps in recovery, um, that's where, um, you know, mindful eating based approaches and health at every size philosophy and they're so useful because it, it, it forms the backbone then to enter back into real life and, and self-compassion, for example. These are the things that, you know, you don't get taught self-compassion at school. You don't get taught how to, um, how to approach food in a neutral way. Um, so I think for full recovery, we've got some pretty great skills and, um, and, you know, health at every size and self-compassion, I think really underpins that. And something I know that you and I feel, feel pretty strongly about it, and that is feminism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, not to discount, obviously, all of the males that live with eating disorders as well. Absolutely. But think, yeah. Um, you know, it is something that occurs so often in women. And I think the feminist movement and even the body positive movement as well, they can be so, so beneficial. Um, and I think I, I shared this on on Jesse's podcast, I think, but that feminism can be really valuable in that it can be hard to give yourself self-compassion um, and to acknowledge your self-worth. But when we start kind of thinking about women as a whole it, and, and then thinking about yourself as part of that group, it can make it a little bit easier by extension to give yourself that kind of compassion and to believe that you are innately worthy. And then also I, I think just to kind of learn from these incredible um, feminist role models, we have to speak up for yourself and to, I guess, take up space in this world and not feel ashamed for doing so or not feel like you should, should have to earn your right to take up space in this world. Yes. Yes, that's so true. And and I think that really speaks to people recovering in a variety of different shapes and sizes. Because um, as, as you and I know, people, um, when they are experiencing actively an eating disorder, comes in many different shapes and sizes. And then a recovered body also comes in many shapes and sizes. So I think, you know, having that strong underpinning of inherent value and worth is such a strong foundation to fall back on because, um, you know, again, we kind of have circled back to, um, you know, to coming into a culture which can send some pretty strong and harmful messages, not pretty, very strong <laughs> and harmful messages about certain bodies being better or quote unquote healthier than others, which is just so, it's so hurtful for people as they're, you know, as they're healing. Oh, for sure. And I think it's, even just seeing that kind of body positive health at every size content can be so valuable. And also I love images. I, you know, again, I use Instagram a lot, but I love the power of, of image of photo. And I think when I see my, my, my social media feeds are so body positive, you know, pro 
pro-haze, pro-intuitive eating, feminist, all that kind of stuff. And I love it. But I flick through my kind of Facebook newsfeed and my Instagram newsfeed. And I see bodies of all shapes and sizes. And I see bodies with fat and scars and stretch marks and all kinds of things that the vast majority of humans have on their body. And I love seeing that because I just think we all need to recognize that most people do not look like the photoshopped images that we see in magazines. And the more that we kind of open our mind and open our eyes to size diversity, again, we can kind of look at our own bodies and go, oh, that's right. I fit. Like I fit in this bigger picture. I don't fit in with the magazines because they're photoshopped and they don't even, the person who's in the photo doesn't even look like the photo. Yeah. Yes, that's so true. That's so true. And, and, and feeling under pressure to, to be a certain way just stops people living, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. And I, um, I don't know who says this quote, so I probably should figure it out. But that whole, you know, imagine if 50% of the population or, or women stopped worrying about their weight. Imagine what we could do. Ah, oh, yeah. So true, you know, <laughs> if we just stopped focusing all our energies on being smaller. Yeah. Imagine, imagine what we could do. Mm. Yes. Powerful. Very, very powerful. And, um, Oh, Megan, I mean, we, 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 I know we love chatting and we, we (laughs) and we do spend a lot of time chatting. Yeah. Who would have thought, (laughs) hey? Um, and I really look forward to seeing you at our upcoming ANZ conference in Sydney. So that'll give us another great chance to, to catch up. But in the meantime, um, can you let people know where they can find you? Yeah, so on Facebook, uh, Shane, Jeffrey, and my practice is FMB Wellbeing. Um, and you can find me on Instagram, which is just Megan Bray underscore dietitian. Oh, beautiful. I love your Instagram feed. So any, anybody, anybody looking for some, for some inspiration and real authenticity, I just love it. You, your Instagram is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it all started, honestly. I think my friends just got sick of my rants. So okay. I took, I took it to social media and <laughs> I absolutely love the connections that have come from it. I think yeah. it's a really, really awesome place to be engaged in. And I mean, I guess that's how we connected originally. It is. Yeah, originally, yeah, originally, definitely, yeah, so funny. My friends got sick of my rants, so I took it online. <laughs> oh, that's, I think that's probably what happened to me too, but anyway. Uh, so, yes, I look forward to, to catching up with you in Sydney. And, Megan, thank you so much for all the valuable contributions you had for us today. I think, you know, um, somebody with a lived experience has, um, ha- has so much value and um, your insights and um your inspiration is just absolutely incredible. So again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me firstly. And also thank you for valuing the lived experience. I, you know, I like to say that to everyone who really does value it. It's, it's incredible and it's powerful. And I just think the more we talk about it, the more, the more we can start using it for, for a way to help all of our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So, yeah, thank you so much for your courage and for your and for for bringing it all for bringing it all to this space. It's just amazing. Thank you. Well, I hope the uh, weather down in Melbourne there isn't too horrendous for you this evening. Oh, listen, <laughs> listen here. All right, that's enough from you. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, Megan. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.